Welcome to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I'm your host, Sadia, and this is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Hello, my sweetness. I'm making myself some chamomile tea. I must show you this. Can you see it? Uh, yeah, I can see it. Wonderful okay, this, tea. This is, for, no, this is a handmade cup from Israel. Oh, wow. Yes. That's awesome. We donate, I donate to, um, it's called Lev HaOlam. Mm -hmm. And the money goes to young businesses that are starting on what they call the West Bank. It's not really the West Bank. It's really Judea and Samaria. Really, it's, I know. Yeah, it's really, it's really Yushalayim, uh, but it's um, they call it "quote unquote" the West Bank, but it's not really. Because when you okay. go to Israel, it's not like you're going to the West Bank any place. It's like right outside of Yushalayim. So, but anyway, so this is one of the handmade cups they send. What they do is they send you samples yeah. of the businesses that you donate to. So this um was a ceramic cup that was handmade by this person who makes these beautiful handmade vessels. And they sent this cup and my cat seems to always be jealous. And I'm on the phone. Stop calling me beast. No worries. Um, all right. So now that we're done with that, um, I was hoping we can talk about the Jewish music experience. Um, I was listening to a podcast earlier uh, this week, and they were interviewing Matas Yahoo, the famous reggae uh, singer. And <laughs> it started reminding me of when Tati introduced me to him because you and him went to a wedding and mm -hmm. saw Matas Yahoo perform. This was way back yes. in the day. And he took one of Matas Yahoo's CDs, one of the original ones, uh, King Without a Crown, I think it was called, or Shake Up the Dust, Arise. Um, and he gave it to me and he told me that, like, you know, I'd probably enjoy it because I was kind of turned off by a lot of, you know, Jewish music of the time. And I, I fell in love with it completely. Um, and the, the the topic, I guess, I want to talk about is what exactly what exactly kind of happened with the Jewish music from when you became a Balchuba when the 80s tech boom hit and all this music came out then the 90s it kind of died off and then in the 2000s it started picking up again and now it's a totally different genre of of opportunity well let me go back to um when when i was young, when i was uh, i'm like say like in elementary school when i was a little you know from yeah. like carry to elementary school um there were two jewish radio programs that aired every sunday one was um, the was totally in Yiddish, called the Yiddish Radio Stunde, which means you know the Jewish Radio Hour, and the man who hosted that was a man named Matt Youngelson. And then there was another one that came on late, I think, later on in the day, that was um, it was not in Yiddish, it was in English, and it was hosted by A.D. Groshko, who oh, yeah. was related to your father. Yeah. And so the music that was that was predominant was of a couple of different genres. First of all, there was Klezmer yes. with the characteristic clarinet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that characteristic of clarinet looks, yeah. And then you had canatorials. Um your there was um we had my my mother, as a matter of fact, owned these old I think there were 78s that played for just, they played for just maybe 10, 15 minutes. 
And they were the 78s of Yesselba Rosenblatt doing canatorials. There was also the Yiddish music from the Yiddish theater. Yeah. That, that type of music. Um, but as for uh, the type of music that we had, there was nothing, there was nothing for children. I mean, nothing. It wasn't until, um, I think in the, I'm trying to think when this was, it had to be in the mid or late sixties, I believe when, um, a group of people came out with under the mitzvah tree. Okay. That was basically, I would have to say, that was basically the very first Jewish music record that came out for children. And there are several songs that I hear teachers using even today that were pulled from that record. Now that record consisted of um, just a piano and a woman and some children singing. Oh, wow. That's all, that's all it was. Then Chabad, in the early 70s, I think 70, 71, whatever, you know, very, very, I think it was like 69, 70, 71, they were the first ones to come out with an actual album of, of Chabad music, of Hasidic music, that wasn't totally canatorial, that wasn't this long, drawn-out, kind of music that make you fall asleep. Yeah. They were the ones to come out without even the band that they used, the instruments that they used. I hate to say it, it's, compared to today's standards, it was really appreciated for the time. But looking back at the quality of the music, they sounded like a high school band, which, which isn't bad. Okay, I know those people, there are many high school bands that sound very, very good. But this sounded very high school, like a high school band. It was, it was a violin, it was a piano. Um, I don't know what else, but for the time, it was, you know, people really enjoyed it. And um, the head of uh, Bayes Rifk at the time, Hannah Gerwitz, told us a funny story that she was, I think she was a young girl at the time. She might have been, she might have been like in high school or something, or junior high school. And they called this plumber to take care of some plumbing problems in their bathroom. And they were downstairs and they were playing this Chabad album. The Chabad album came out. And they hear like all this like stamping going on in the bathroom, like rhythmic stamping. And what's going on? So they ran upstairs to the Benzie. What's going on? Like what's, what's this plumber doing? The plumber, while he was working on their sink, was dancing to the music. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love I, I I see some like I see some viral videos that come out every so often where you have like non-Jewish people like listening to like Jewish music or blasting Jewish music or like singing along to the songs or singing everything like you know perfectly, like the lyrics and every and everything like that. And I just it just it gives me joy. It just it, it, like it really makes me happy knowing like like there's a there I don't know, there's a part of me that feels like I guess it's this Jewish, you know, lack of, of pride. Like we don't, I don't really think like, I like it. I don't know if anybody else likes it. And then when I hear like, or see like non-Jewish people really like our music, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That's so like, you know, interesting. Well, there was one time where I have to tell you that, that there were, you know, there, there are people sometimes we come across this all the time that as they're driving their cars, they're blasting this, you know, Real obnoxious, you know. Just, just loud music. Just loud music, that's all. 
they blame this right this loud music. So your father, he it was the tape he put on. Do you remember? I don't know what group did it, but the one. Uh, 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 oh, 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 Sikhas, I think it's called. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So your father went ahead and blasted it. And there was this non-Jewish girl that heard the music and she started dancing to it. <laughs> I think I remember that happening. It was like Cholamoid and like we were like leaving like the, the the house and like he was just sort of blasting the music. And I, I saw these two girls walking by and just, just dancing to it and thought it was, that yeah. was cool. Yeah. Look, it's like, I don't know, there's this other thing. I, I, it's like a lot of people have issues with like, in fact, like a lot of Jewish music can be very depressing. You know, I, I know like, I know a lot of people feel like A.B. Rottenberg music can get very, like, very dark and like depressing um, with his lyrics and his and his songs. Well, um, I'd like to make an, like an observation. I've noticed, well, I it's not that I've noticed. But in general, the whole, the difference between the regular Western Ashkenazic Jews and Hasidic Jews is the big difference between is they have the, they were the, how can I say, the pro, the, the pro, the pro, uh, promogeners, what am I saying? The, the, the people who are pushing something, who are, you know, promoters, they're the promoters of the Musser movement. Yeah. And we, on the other hand, are promoters of Hasidic philosophy, which is more, which is supposed to bring out more joy. The whole it's, thing about the Hasidic was we're supposed to bring out the joy of dabbing, the joy of doing the mitzvahs. And I think that the, that our, that our Ashkenazic, I know some people are gonna be mad at me about this one, but I think our Ashkenazic, Lithuanian and, you know, regular, you know, German, uh, brothers have a tendency because of their Muslim movement to be a little, hmm, like the, a little on the depressing side. Well, it's it's I I enjoy it. Like I like A. B. Rottenberg, but like I would listen to one of his songs that I really enjoy. It's called "The Place Where I Belong." It's about a yes. safer Torah uh, yes. that was that was in Ukraine during the in the shtetls, and right. then the Holocaust happened, and then after the Holocaust. Uh, he gets taken to America. The Torah gets taken to America and then put on display instead of being used. Yeah. And well, the, um, go ahead. Yeah. So that that's that's the song. I know the book. It's based off. I don't know if it's based off or what. How, who came first? But mm -hmm. there was a a child story that had the same everything word for word. But in the end, uh, someone takes him out of the case and dances with the Torah. And obviously, it's implied that. He takes him back home to a to a shul. Um, yeah, that they um that they found the owner. They found the they found the great great like uh, grandson of Yankel the scribe who wrote the Torah, and they were able to and Yank and they asked him if he would like to have the since this was his great great grandfather's Torah. They they invite him you know to come to the museum and take it out, and he takes it to the shul. And yeah. everybody dances with the Torah once more. Yeah, that was. I think the ending in that book was a lot was a lot more positive, obviously. Yeah, the song was. This, this song was more of like what will happen. Like this is because sadly enough, it's true. There are a lot of Torahs that are on display that should not be on display. That should be used. You know, it's not some ancient, you know, hieroglyphs that are like put on display in the British Museum. No, this, these are 
physical objects that are used on a daily basis that mm -hmm. have been used for thousands of years and they should be reused again. Uh, they shouldn't be put on display in museums. It's 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 inappropriate. It's it's in a way it's a disservice to the items themselves. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people would. I think a lot of people would agree with that. But on the other hand, what putting them in a museum, if there's another way of looking at, it, does is it it helps a lot of say it helps a lot of Jewish people, especially like you know unaffiliated Jewish people will go like I'm. I remember when I was an unaffiliated Jew. Yeah, and um when I went when I would go to a museum and see something of a Jewish nature. And even though I was not affiliated, it made me proud. It made me feel more connected to my ancestry. And I can, I can appreciate that. But again, on the flip side, it's yeah. like, you know, we're, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take a page from another museum that I, I went to. Uh, I was in, I was in DC a while ago. <clears throat> I was in DC a while ago. And I went to the Native American um, Museum, and I was expecting a bunch of ancient Native American um, pieces. I thought, you know, like, oh, in Washington, D.C., we found this from this tribe, or in Maryland, we've had this from this tribe, or we went to Alaska. And had yeah, this, this, that's, this. That's, that's what I would expect, too. Yeah. No, it's about just it? about the culture of today, the modern Native American culture mm -hmm. of the day. And it was that's, a whole that's, museum. That's kind of disappointing. It, That's it was because I, I go to a museum to look at like ancient artifacts. I think a lot of people do. So it, it it was a little disappointing to me. I didn't care for it and I left. But after leaving, I thought about it and it reminded me of the the story of the the Torah, where it's like we aren't some ancient old like this isn't something that only happened in, back in the day. This is something we do now. And that museum was showing that all this Native American culture is still happening now, today, hmm. you know? Um, but it was funny because I, I I played that, I love that song, and I've played that song in front of some of my non-Jewish friends and acquaintances, and some of them are like, dude, that's the most depressing song they've ever heard. <laughs> like, they, can't, they can't take it. They just physically, emotionally can't take that song. And, hmm. I, like, it, it's certain songs that are, like, are depressing, I, I do kind of enjoy um, but there are some Jewish, mu Jewish music where like, it just sounds very cheesy or hacky or like, I don't know, maybe I'm like a hipster where like, it's just, it's too mainstream. It doesn't sound like it has an edge to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And like some songs, some, t some, you know, bands or singers, they do have an edge. Like Ishai Rebo has like a, he's, he's an Israeli, uh, musical artist nowadays who he's a from artist. And he has a lot of poetry that he puts inside his songs. And it's good poetry. And it's Hebrew, good, original, new poetry. And that's mm -hmm. what I find interesting. Because a lot of the Jewish music that happened, I guess, in the 80s and, and in the 90s, it was still fairly new that you have these, these pop singers of the time, like MBD, um, Avram Fried, you know, where they wouldn't – they would take risks – in a way where they're finally using a nice giant orchestra and they're having very strong, passionate songs and it's just, and, and it's parts of Tehillim, but it's like after a while, I guess in, in a way, like it, it almost doesn't seem like it's original. Like I think Mordechai and David took a Germanic um, folk song, took the tune and then it, 
used it for a, a song called Yidden. It no, you know what it was. Oh, I oh yes, story. you heard the story. I heard the story. We'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah. What happened was actually it turned out to be a song that the stormtroopers, the German stormtroopers, sang. Oh wow! And they played it at a wedding, and there was a Holocaust survivor at the wedding who heard it and got up and left the room. Got very upset. Wow! Even though they, you know, they have, of course, the the lyrics are you know are more are very positive to jewish you know talks about the mashiach is coming and everything maybe that was the purpose that you know hey we're going to take one of your songs that you know you people who killed the jews we're making one of your songs and now we're going to take it and we're going to make it into a jewish song so you're going to make wagner jewish maybe that was the idea what you're going to make wagner jewish (laughs) (laughs) um Uh, but I mean, yeah, I, I, that, that's that's another about thing. Wagner, like I, t- I told you one of our podcasts. I had to make I had to make a book report about his uh, his book on conducting. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, we about talked about that. that. One. Yeah, yeah. So what a... oh, I remember. Ta- I remember talking about uh, about this topic uh, to a few people on Facebook about why can't like the originality in Jewish music? Because so much Jewish music is taken from non-Jewish songs. Well, quite honestly, I don't think there is what we could call like pure pure Jewish because we Jews have been all over the world and every place we've gone, we've absorbed certain aspects of that culture. And there's nothing, how can you say that something is purely, you know, you can't say anything is purely Jewish because it's, yeah, there's so much in every place that we've been that we have borrowed from their music and their art. There's, I, I, you know, even when the Jews, like, the, when the Jewish people, when, where did the Jewish people become a people? Not, in, in, when Pesach was coming up, okay? So we all know the answer to that one. It wasn't in Israel that we became a people. We became a people in Egypt. When we grew, that's where we finally became a nation, a, a separate nation. I, and I then think... as we left, and we left Egypt, and we received the Torah in Harsinai, you know, again, right outside of Israel, we were not even in Israel. So I'm sure we absorbed a lot of music and art from the Egyptians when we well, were there. I th- I think I've mentioned this. I think I mentioned this in a few other podcasts. Um, but I remember I did some architectural research in Egypt and Jordan, as well as you know just some academic work on the base of Mikdash for architecture. And what I've noticed is that the style of architecture from what we know is the Solomon's Temple is very similar to the layout of a lot of um, a lot of temples at the time in Egypt, in Jordan. Uh, hmm. Just the way things are set up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess in a way it's like what makes something Jewish is that as long as it has the Torah and mitzvot in the background... Because it's it's something that I think is I find it kind of silly, kind of stupid, kind of ridiculous. But it's like they have this whole idea of like, well, you know, bagels and lox is is, is Jewish. Pastrami really and rye is, is it's Jewish. Actually, it's actually European. It's just no. It, it's what, I'm, what I'm saying it's is like it's like from that. It's, it's actually like north uh, northwest European. Because when I went to Germany in the nineteen, when I was I was when I went to Germany in the nineteen seventies, I was shocked to 
pass through some restaurants and see people eating herring and sour cream. I'm like, wait a minute, isn't that supposed to be Jewish food? Well, it's it's also well, bagels were made by Jews. They were they were created by Jews because something along the lines of like at the time the the Catholic Church had a hold on making bread, and the only thing the Jews were able to make at the time were bagels. Um, I it's I don't. But there's also something too, like when you go to the Middle East, you notice that the a that a ba- the bagel like bread, that type of bread where there's a hole in the middle, like a donut type bread. I've seen a lot of that among um among Arabs when I was uh, when I was in Israel. Yeah, the bagel that's 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 different. Um but we're talking about the bagel from that that came from a lot of Eastern European Jews. So this is so that's that's where it comes down to where it's like you know what is it that makes it Jewish? And there was this I think and I've mentioned this in previous podcasts before so I I'm not going to repeat myself. And I'm going to get back we on might, track. We might have some new listeners. Yeah, they can <laughs> listen to something else. <laughs> um, no, it's it's just that I want to get back to I want to get back to the music. Um, <laughs> but like, what makes Jewish music compared to non-Jewish music? And I have. Music. Ooh, I believe in love. I believe in music. So, with music, I had this whole joke where, like, if the person that sings the song is if they're Jewish. And they have Jewish themes, then technically it's Jewish music. So you have like Drake um singing God's plan, technically that's Jewish music. Um, but who's I, Drake? I, Drake is a, a famous rapper um from Canada. Um, yeah. I'm I'm culturally deprived. I'm not into the higher echelons. Yeah. Culture. All I all I know is Beethoven and Bach and Wagner and you know, Schoenberg and uh, Schubert, and, you know, that that's not, according to your father, that's not real music. Grateful Dead. Now, according to your father, that was real music. Well, you, sh- you should listen to uh, Moody Blues. It's great. I, I mean, they're, oh, I they're... Like Do you want everybody likes about Moody Blues? What? They use classical, they use classical music. Well, no, it's, it's, look, here's the thing. The, the sound is like a classical type sound. Yeah. Thank and why is, cla- why do people not like yeah. classical music? Explain it to me. Why? I don't know. I always like okay. classical music. So the reason why I don't I like think, classical I think, music, I think they're, I think they're prejudiced against it. No, there's no. They no, hear the term classical no, music already. No. If it's good, it if it sounds good, it'll flow. The reason why I don't like classical music is because, in a way, it's extremely boring at first. It takes how a really much, long time to. How much have you listened to it? Ema, I listened how to much? it my whole. Okay, so from the time I was born. Up until maybe I would say mm-hmm. I was like 26. Mm-hmm. I, I've been listening to classical music, turning on 91.5 in mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Maryland, in Baltimore. Um, listen to you, listen to classical music. I've been exposed to a lot, Ema. I just don't find it appealing. It's boring. It's just like you have. Oh, that's too bad. Have, oh, that's pro- too bad. You probably have like a 45 minute to like an hour long song, which is fine. But the problem is, to me, I'm trying to listen to it, and it doesn't feel like a journey. Well, to me, it feels it feels it's cold like and rigid, rock, like rock and roll. You listen to the song once, right? Twice, three times, four times. Two weeks later, it's gone, and there's another one that's now number one in the country because there's not too much substance to it. 
classical music you can listen to over and over and over again and still pick out different things that you didn't hear before. You know what I liked listening to? Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. That's a 45-minute album, and the entire album, it's like an orchestra. And I can listen to it all day, every day, and it is you amazing. Said you said something. You said it's like an orchestra. I said isn't like it, an orchestra, right. not is yeah, an but, orchestra. It, but isn't that sound like Correct. orchestra's Correct. pipe down? Isn't so here, that so here's the point. classical music? So yes. So this is the idea of postmodernism versus modernism versus classical. So classicalism had so many rules on top of rules on top of rules, it was too crowded. The classicalist rules are too it crowded. It, it depends. too many things going they, on. Beethoven presented the world with a new sound and then kept developing that new sound. When Beethoven came on the scene, it was very, very different from your typical Baroque or classical. Beethoven was like the bridge between classical and the Romantic era. Mm-hmm. And he introduced a whole new sound. As a matter of fact, um, I don't know if I said this on another podcast, when, when our music history professor played for us a string quartet that Beethoven wrote right at the end of his life, very end okay. of his life. And we were shocked. You would never imagine the string quartet had been written in the 19th century. It sounded like 20th century music. Evidently, Beethoven was experimenting with atonal sounds that eventually, of course, you know, atonal music became characteristic or atonal, experimenting with atonal sounds became characteristic of 20th century music. So explain to me atonal sounds. Atonal sounds are notes that typically do not sound good together. For example, if I play a chord, a regular chord, a C, a C, say I'm playing a C major chord. C major chord consists of C, E, and G played together. It's called C, C major triad. Can and, you do that on the piano now? Sure. Let me, let me go over to the piano. I can show you. Yeah, because I'm a, I'm a visual slash auditory kind of listen, listen learner. But, um, yeah, because there's... Going over to my piano room. Because I'm aware there's multiple different chords and there's multiple different patterns. Um, and I understand that okay, here's various... an example. Yeah, okay, yeah. give me an example. Can you see? Okay. Can you see my fingers? Yes, I see your fingers. C E G. Okay. Now that sounds nice together, right? Wait, do it again. Do it again. The audio blacked out. Oh, it blacks out. I can't it... C major triad. Did you hear it? Um, no, I couldn't hear it. What? You don't hear it. You're you're too close to the your your pet. You have to. The audio can only handle so much. You have to be okay. taken away. Hey, how's it? Listen to these. Okay, C E G. Hear that it's, sound now? No, you can't. I can't hear it. What? Yeah, it doesn't play. Play it. How's it now? Nothing. I can't hear it. It's not going over. It's not going, going over the audio. The what? Nope. It's not hearing it over the audio. Yeah. I don't believe it. Let me try it again. Do you hear that now? Yes. Hear that? Kind of. No, nothing. All right. Whatever. We'll have to move I don't on. Believe it. It's nuts. 
this, the audio. You're... Okay, but you get the idea. It's I yeah. can't believe you don't the, hear the audio. But anyway, no. C E G goes yeah. together. It's a chord. Now, on the other hand, if I were to play C and D together, yeah, that would not match. That nope. would sound like those two notes would not sound good together. It would like yeah. clash. And so the character characteristics, the main, a great characteristic of the 20th century music is that a lot of 20th century composers were experimenting with putting these notes together that ordinarily would not sound good together and doing it in a certain way that maybe it's, you know, it wouldn't sound good, but it would be and it, like a like a sound would be interesting. In other words, we used to call it in college. Um, it was, it's been called um, basically it's been called intellectual music or um, yeah, but you know avant garde maybe experimental music or intellectual music. And okay, it it doesn't sound that good. It doesn't sound you know it doesn't sound great in the traditional uh, sense of the word of music sounding beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it sounds what people would characterize either as ah this sounds horrible together or some people would say no it sounds interesting they would say interesting together mm. but they wouldn't say oh it's so beautiful it sounds good together i i had there was one of my music teachers in junior high school who every time i went to his office to at to, to talk to him ask him something he was always playing schoenberg or he was always playing scriabin those were two main you might say experimental music composers that were exper- that experimented with atonal music and I said to him, how can you, st-? and he would, he's listening, this guy's listening to it the whole day. I said, how can you stand to listen to that music? And he said, well, he says, if you appreciate what the composer's doing, he says, then, you know, not that it's enjoyable, but you can appreciate the music. And he was appreciating it from an intellectual point of view of what the composer was trying to do with the notes. It reminds me of what Jackie Mason said. He said, when you have some kind of alcohol or beer, they say it's an acquired taste. You've yeah. never ha- you've never had an acquired taste for a potato chip. It just tastes good. So like that's like that's how wine. I feel when it comes to it when dry dry, dry wine's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's that's kind of where where it comes from. Like I was listening to these comedians, um, on a podcast and they were talking about the craft of comedy and they, they had these guys where they're, they're trying to do this outlandish, crazy comedy. And they both said, they're like, you need to like respect, understand and build the rules first before you can think of breaking them. So like, he's like, you can't just go out of the box and do all this out of the box way of doing this comedy, this, that, and the other, you have to go by the original rules that we know, accept them build them create them and after you've done a couple good times of making good comedy then you can go a little bit above and beyond and kind of break away and that's very similar to architecture as well where it's like good postmodernism, good modernism the only reason why it's good is because whoever did it understood classicalism first understood baroque first understood these movements before it because if you don't understand the renaissance if you don't understand these other movements and then you try to jump the gun and try to do something you know out of the box you're not going to do out of the box because you don't really know what the box is and that's kind of that's kind of the question now yeah 
are there, other than the pyramids in Egypt, is there any architect, modern architect, that has designed a modern building that's a pyramid? Everyone and their mother. Look at look go to go to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. There's there, go to Las Vegas. Go to go to a Bass Pro Shop in um I think like Tennessee. I think there's one. Um, go to uh, the IMAX Theater in a lot in Israel. Um, there's besides the Mayan pyramids, you know, which were technically after the Egyptian pyramids. Um, it's just like the, everyone and their mother can can make a pyramid. It's just what's amazing about the pyramids is that no one still understands how they were made. You have speculations. They have ideas. They say that they use different water banks, but like the sizing of the of the stones and what they did to create it would take like modern day technology, like a lifetime to do. And these people did it like without that, like at a quicker pace. So like it just doesn't kind of add up. And like archaeologically, mm-hmm. it's just there's a whole mystery to it. Um, but we got to go. But we have I well, want... I've got my own idea about that, though. I think what it is, if you're a slave and you've got something with a whip. And he says, put that brick in there or you're dead. You're going to get that brick in there. I guess I you're right. Was, I think that was the secret behind the pyramids. So, Ima, what, could you tell us a story about how when you were a kid and how the faculty um, had an orchestra for you guys? Oh, it wasn't a kid. I was in college. What happened okay. was, this is a funny story. When I was in college, um, the entire year, of course, the music students were required to give, a, you know, to give recitals. And of course, we worked very hard, you know, practicing and practicing because the last thing we wanted to do was to look bad in front of the other students, playing your instrument, and you don't want your your own friends to come over to you and say, "Hey, that was lousy," you know. So you know, you really you really practiced very very much to put a, to do a good performance. Well, the the um, I think it was the the voice the vocal faculty, the voice faculty, um, announced to the students that we've worked so hard all year putting these recitals together. So they're going to treat us to a recital that they're going to give just for us. And so, of course, we, you know, are pretty excited. Oh, well, you know, the, the, the vocal faculty is getting together and they're going to give a whole recital like just for the, you know, music students. And of course, we come into the auditorium for the, you know, for the concert, expecting a expecting a regular concert. And the faculty comes out and the, the men are dressed in nice, you know, suits and the ladies are dressed in nice gowns. And they start to perform. We didn't realize we had been tricked. We had been had. The purpose of their so-called recital was to tease us about all the mistakes that we make in performing or practicing. And you know how they get up there and they're singing the song and this one uh, teacher starts to go like this, like she's she's like almost doing these like pirouettes and gyrations as she's singing. And there's this other, the, the choir professor takes the music and purposely puts it up against the space and sings into it, and sings into the into the sheet music. And you know, they they you know, I think a few of them like purposely hit wrong notes or they, you know, they, they forget stuff or they, you know, on purpose or they go back like the choir, like this one teacher, like he's starting to sing and all of a sudden he looks at the music and he starts to turn the pages real fast, looks again, he starts to turn the pages and looks and looks real fast. And finally there was this one part of the music where they were all supposed to sing in unison 
and they put their music down and they bend forward. And as they're singing in unison, they give us all this big sadistic smile. That's awesome. So I guess in a way, what modern music that you've listened to lately did you enjoy? You talking about the classical genre? Um, maybe classical genre, maybe pop or rock genre. I'm trying to think. Um, I tell you the truth, I haven't been, I have not been listening to modern music lately. I really haven't. I, um, if I want to relax, I've been, I've been putting on, you know, Dvorak. I, I, I like a lot of Dvorak's music. It's cello, cello concerto. Mm. It's very beautiful. Um, the Slavonic dances. If, if I enjoy, I, or if I've been I, listening to like box um Brandenburg and Charity. If I gave you I like, if I gave you, I would say like Dark Side of the Moon. Um, would you listen to it, and then we can talk about it and discuss it? Yeah, I'd be happy to listen to it. Yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. So we can. I'll, I'll turn it on tonight while I'm in the shower. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but you have to listen to the whole thing. You can't okay. stop it or skip. It has to be the full thing. And then we could discuss, we'll have a whole discussion because next week we're, I'm going to see you live. That's right. Oh yeah. boy. Oh boy. Oh yeah. boy. Oh boy. We're, we're Pesach. Yeah. Pesach is coming. We're, we're so, so happy. happy. We're going to sing and chat. You know, it reminds me about one time um, at the women, the women's Lubavitcher convention in Georgetown many, many years ago. Yeah. I got a frantic call from the woman who organized it. Evidently a, there was a singer that, that that was supposed to come to entertain the ladies Friday night. And I think she got sick at the last minute or something. And so the organizer knew that I had been a professional singer and she called me. She goes, Sahaka, please, please, you know, can, can you sing Friday night for the ladies? I said, yeah, I'd love to, you know? So um, I thought to, so as I was, you know, driving down to the convention, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, what, what music do I know? And I thought, the only Jewish music I really know by heart is Uncle Moishi and 613 Torah Avenue. From, oh, all, from all the kids, from all you kids listening to. And so I get there and I get in front of the women's convention. I go, ladies, I was asked to sing at the last minute. And I'll be very honest with you. The only songs I really know is from Uncle Moishi or 613 Torah Avenue. But I said, but I'll try to dig into the recesses of my mind and see what I can come up with. And I sang Animami. I think I sang... Um, I sang Aisha Schile mm -hmm. and a few of the, you know, like Shabbat from, you know, Shabbos liturgy. I sang a few from, you know, Tehillim. And uh, Baruch Hashem was pretty successful. They, um, you know, the, the the women really, they really enjoyed it. A couple of women came up to me and said it was a, it was a nice, uh, it had to be a cappella. It was Friday night. And they also, it was a very nice a cappella performance. That's awesome. That's great. All right. Um, I guess we'll, I'll see you guys willing next week. Okay, sweetheart. Love you. Love Safe you. Safe trip. Cool too. That's Safe trip. God willing. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. Please send us feedback and comments on our Facebook page and like and subscribe on YouTube. I know I would like it, and my mother would too.